Hi, I'm Lan Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Janelle Klein. Janelle is an Austin, Texas-based NFJS tour speaker and technical mentor. She's the founder of Software Mastery Circle, which is dedicated to data-driven software mastery and aligning the interests of business and software engineering. Janelle is the CTO of the recruitment consultancy New Iron that specializes in building software teams. Janelle is also the author of the LeanPub book, Idea Flow, How to Measure the Pain in Software Development. The book is about the hugely important topic of technical risk management and presents, in, Janelle, in Janelle's words, a modern strategy for systematically optimizing software productivity with a data-driven feedback loop by measuring the pain or friction in developer experience, people can identify the biggest problems, understand the causes, and run experiments to systematically learn what works. In this interview, we're going to talk about Janelle's professional interests, her book, her experiences using LeanPub at the end of the interview, and ways we can improve LeanPub for her and other authors. So thank you, Janelle, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in agile and software development. Sure. Um, let's see. So I'll start from college. Um, so, well, slightly before college. So I, I, when I, when I graduated high school, I, I ran off and married my high school sweetheart, not the best decision I ever made, but that got me running off to, to California to be a professional songwriter and following my dreams. And, and then I got into college and I, I started to realize what a career in music might actually be like. And it just sort of sucked all the, the, the passion out of me thinking about having to write to make money. And, and I knew absolutely nothing about software development. Um, we had a, a computer growing up that I played lots of games on. So I've, I've always been a huge avid, um, gamer and, uh, my ex-husband at the time, he was in the military doing, um, uh, network management, computery stuff, kind of a hardware geek. And he's like, let's take this assembly programming class. It'll be so cool. Assembly is like awesome. It's all this low-level cool shit, right? And, and so I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. So we went and took this assembly programming class. And I was like, this is kind of like programming my my calculator in math class. Oh, I can figure this out. You got these basic instructions. And I started writing reams and reams of assembly code. I wrote uh, the game like Breakout with the paddles and all that like completely in assembly with you know full 256 colors and little music and beeps when the when the thing hit the wall just completely in assembly. And my teacher was like, "Well, you know, at this point, just show me what you're working on. You can work on whatever you want, and you get an A." And I'm like, "That's cool. I should take more classes like this, right?" But but that that moment really changed things for me because because it was this this moment of like unlimited exploration where I could go and create like anything I could dream of. And it was this ultimate kind of artistic medium. And that's when I fell in love with software development. And I have, I've had one experience after another that's been like this giant open-ended kind of problem of, you know, following whatever, dreams that that you might have and in turning ideas into awesome tools and as i've learned how to do that with other people it's been like just one of the coolest experiences imaginable and you know really software development is very much the love of my life 
Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic story. Um, uh, it's interesting. Um, I, one thing when I'm interviewing Lima authors, many of them are in, in software development. Um, and um, it's curious. I think at this point, it's now less than half of the people I've interviewed who end up in software um, took something like computer science in university. Um, people come come into software development from so many different directions. Um, in, I was wondering how you um, ended up at um, New Iron um, doing consulting work. Um, so I, I ended up at this kind of strange company, um, the, uh, new iron, uh, doing, um, uh, I, I mentioned it's a software niche recruiting company, or you mentioned that in my intro, but, um, I, I started off working for new iron just as, as a contractor on, on, uh, on this project at a semiconductor company. And so I got really involved in semiconductor and, uh, lean manufacturing and supply chain optimization and process control and doing like, you know, back end high volume data automation stuff. And uh, problem space wise, it was, it was really cool. But as I, as I started to learn more about lean, cause the company was all about everything lean, I started to get involved in their lean consulting program and like teaching lean practices around the company, but in the context of software development and, and, um, uh, after, you know, figuring out how to, um, you know, solve the problems on my own project and just getting better at software development and how to, you know, figure out what your problems are and, and, and turn around a failing ship. Um, I, I got really good at helping other people to solve those problems. And so, um, and you know, it, 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 was never really that complicated in, in consulting. Like the, the main thing I discovered is that, you know, the job of a consultant is essentially to come in and identify the elephants and point to them. <laughs> and usually um, if you just listen to what people are saying, they're already talking about what all their problems are. And a lot of times I'll just like echo the same things that the team is already saying and just explain it to management, but, you know, with a nice keynote and, you know, explaining things in management speak and suddenly all these all these communication problems where you know engineers couldn't talk to management became um you know my my niche is figuring out how to communicate all this pain with metaphors and stuff so so that I could bridge that gap and and a lot of the failures of projects are caused by these um problems with this inability to communicate and so um with consulting, it was kind of a, a natural niche for helping out with that. And then with with New Iron, um, since um, uh, we specialize in technical assessment and uh, developer mentorship, it's been, I mean, I've got to basically um, focus on uh, teaching people, doing a bunch of stuff with uh, the community, um, uh, uh mastering the art of, you know, technical assessment and teaching people how to uh, uh, build more effective teams. I mean, it, it all kind of went together with consulting. And then um, since in school, I, I, I almost got my PhD, but I decided not to because I was really eager to get into industry. And I, I really enjoyed like all the HCI kind of stuff. And so um I, I always had this love of science and research. 
And I thought about going back to get my PhD and then realized, you know, I don't need a degree to, to be a scientist, right? If I want to go and do research and learn about problems, I can just set up my own little research lab and learn about problems. And so I started treating developers kind of like guinea pigs and set up a little lab in my work environment and then started, um, you know, codifying the things I was learning about how to teach the art of software development into patterns and principles using these tools, which is, you know, a lot of that learning created the basis for idea flow. And so I, so I didn't scare everybody away. I decided to write my book as kind of a first person narrative story of my own experiences. So it didn't read like a dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to actually talking to you about, about, about your book. Um, that's, um, uh, it's it's really interesting. Um, I just have one one question I'd like to ask before we get to that though, which is about um. There's a line I think on New Iron's website that says, "Being a good developer doesn't make you a good interviewer." Um, and this is something I've been reading more and more about in the tech press lately. It's just become kind of a little bit of a meme, I guess. Um, and um, there, you know, especially in relationship to people with various kinds of disability. Um, and I was wondering how you would recommend people hiring software developers to approach giving interviews? I think the main piece of advice I would give developers is to focus on testing decision-making abilities rather than current active skills in that the profession of software development is all about being a professional learner. It's knowing, you know, how to find and look up information and how to break down problems and, and how to learn your way out of, you know, a, a broken situation. And, and so what I eventually came to is that we need a method of technical assessment that focuses on assessing a, a person's capability to reason about problems and navigate trade-off decisions as opposed to do you know what GDD is or can you write a unit test? Because at the end of the day, it's not about what you can do right now. It's about you know what you can learn when you're on the job because you're never going to be faced with the same problem and the same challenges. I mean, this industry changes so fast. We're professional learners. We're professional problem solvers. And that's what makes people good is their ability to craftsmanship skill that comes from years of intuition based around problem solving is really, you know, what skill is. And that's what we need to kind of be assessing for. So the main thing I do is put uh, real problems in front of people. And then I ask them lots of questions to poke into their reasoning process, as opposed to can you get from A to B? It's about what kind of options are you exploring? Do you do things like, um, or do you recommend doing things like asking, um, riddles to see how people respond to kind of unfamiliar questions or is that something that you think is so uh, not irrelevant i'm not practice? good with riddles so it's hard okay. for me to <laughs> um yeah probably probably not answering riddles i i i i would hate to be given a riddle in a i i guess the other thing i'd, I'd say with um is that when people get nervous their ability to make um intuitive leaps to solutions generally um, kind of shuts down a bit, but their their recognition skills don't. Um, in that, and if you put something in front of somebody and they don't recognize that there's a, there's a a code smell of sorts or you know some problem with things, then um, then that's usually a sign that something is actually wrong or missing. Whereas um, just because somebody can't come up with the right answer. 
I just, it's just the world is not that black and white. And I, and I know technical assessment is really hard, but it's as opposed to like, for example, with respect to certifications, I mean, we've been working on coming up a way to, to systematize technical assessment so that I could, you know, teach other people how to do uh, my interview technique. And it's taken us a decade to figure out how to do that. But, you know, a lot of people punt on the whole certification problem because it you know, it can't be done. It's too hard. It's just, you know, there's so many problems with um, commercialized certification in our industry that everybody kind of is like, oh, well, we shouldn't even try because it's just going to cause so many problems. And I, I think we need to move toward more of a model where it's a open certification, where we're testing decision-making skills. And it's a it's an industry public debate about, you know, working on getting better at this as opposed to just giving up on the problem because it can't be done. And just make technical assessment like a, you know, free standard almost that we, we work on together as a community because we all benefit from having a clear definition of what good is. I mean, like we need that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and in that context, I'm curious what your what you think about nervousness in interviews and things like that, right? Because it's very, you know, um, the the interview is a situation that the person will never find themselves in again, you know, more or less if you if you hire them, right? They're going to then be working. Um, and so, you know, people can um, be nervous in interviews, but not nervous when they're doing their work. Um, you know, sure. I, I was once interviewing someone who'd um, just finished a master's in maths at Cambridge and, um, you know, failed to do basic arithmetic in response to a question. Um, so I knew, I knew what the interviewee was capable of, um, in normal circumstances, but not in the stressful circumstance of, of an interview. Um, and so even, you know, sort of the best certification or qualification or something like that, that someone comes in the room with on paper, you know, can sometimes not translate, um, in an interview, but can in work. And so I was wondering if you, if you advocate sort of giving people problems to take home and solve or something like that as part of the recruitment process? I I don't really do take home problem solving kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I certainly see the benefits, but the, the main problem I have with the take home thing is that it, it takes too long and it's too much work. And in a market where everybody's hiring and there aren't enough good people, the last thing I want to do is go and create more barriers to entry to hiring the right people. And so we've basically focused on how can you get the maximum amount of information to make a quality decision in a limited amount of time. And uh, because the take-home thing has to be you know, scheduled around life, it's much easier to get people to ha- show up for a scheduled you know, one-hour call um, and then I basically do that with, you know, video sharing and stuff so I can throw code up on the screen and ask people about it. But we're we're all about, you know, optimizing the time spent in that. And then the other things I uh, I do are, you know, for for the on-site are uh, like a, a code pairing interview and then something that's more like a design focus. So I tend to focus on um, core skills as opposed to do you know whatever trivia like, you know, whether, you know, order in of, you know, some, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's some things that, that are just that, um, computer science related kinds of questions that are so far removed from what we actually use on a day-to-day job. 
um, that I'm much more interested in people's everyday problem solving skills. Can you like refactor this code? Can you work with the people on your team? Are you an asshole? (laughs) Those kind of things. Yeah, that's a that's a really great and very you know practical answer. I can imagine, especially. I mean, I don't know how much of your work actually is recruiting people in Austin, but I mean, I can imagine the competition for developers there for good developers there must be really high. Yeah, um, we're we're pretty much um, we pretty much only work in Austin. I mean, we we have some stuff going on in other states just from clients that have multiple sites in mo- most locations. But we've always been very central here. And then since our company is run by um, software folks, um, uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting how we ended up in software development because New Iron used to be a product company that um, built a first generation web services stack. They're out in California and, you know, thought, oh, we're going to build this awesome product and everyone will buy it because it's so awesome. And obviously that wasn't a very good business strategy. And so we're sitting around kind of going broke basically. And then got a a call from an old client that we used to work with. And they're like, they're like, Hey, can you guys, you know, help us on this consulting project, you know, on, on the software and we're like, you know, money, no money. <laughs> and so easy choice, right? And so as we started consulting there, they're like, do you guys know anybody else that can code? And since we already had a vendor agreement set up, we just started, you know, talking, recruiting all our friends. And and um, we we did full on interviews for everybody, not having any idea how the recruiting industry was supposed to work, that nobody does this kind of thing. And so we started getting really good at technical assessment and that sort of just became our niche because it's it's um hiring people and figuring out what skills you need versus what's available on the market and having unrealistic expectations about you know hiring superman or, and that you can instantly you know take all these things that you're deeply familiar with and say oh now you do this job it's, it's just there's so many companies that have so many unrealistic expectations about it because hiring isn't like a first priority in in a lot of companies so it's just kind of people don't necessarily put the time into it that it need that it needs and deserves yet it's so important and causes so many problems when you hire the wrong people or for the wrong things. And so we get a lot more involved in understanding what our clients actually are trying to accomplish as a as a company, as a team, and and help them to um, you know come up with a realistic strategy that um, they can actually you know find a gap they can fill as well as a gap that can they can sell. Because you know in this kind of market, if you have a a, a job for, oh, this is a Java development position, like so many other Java development positions. One thing, one thing one reads about um, in the press around recruitment is um, the way that employers or recruiters will sometimes look into a person's internet history. Um, and I was curious if that's something that, that um, you recommend employers do. Internet history in terms of like what they post online. Yeah. Um, it's not something we do in that generally speaking, um, generally speaking, we, we focus on whether the developer has the skills, you know, is able to demonstrate the skills as opposed to any kind of past history kind of thing. I think since we have a really good process for technical assessment itself, 
it's like everything else is almost irrelevant and that if you've got one year experience but you can bring it when it, <laughs> when it comes down to sitting in front of a computer and solving a problem, you know, I, I don't really care if you've only been programming for a year. I, I, I'll just, I'll just think you're awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a really fantastic answer. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. That sounds very, very reasonable. Um, uh, moving on to the subject of your book, um, which by the way, I really liked, um, uh, you start with a pretty dramatic story, um, about your experience working on a statistical process control system for semiconductor factory, I think. And, um, uh, you, you mentioned the, the, elephant in the room before and I guess I guess in your in that particular experience there was I guess a sort of invisible elephant um there and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience um and its impact on your approach to complex software engineering projects wow okay that's a that's a big question um so so in terms of the experience uh, i was on i was on this project with this really great team really smart people um we had test automation you know ci great team disciplined practice practices and despite doing all the things that we were supposed to do our project basically crashed and burned and hit a wall and by hit a wall i mean we brought down production three times in a row and then didn't ship again for another year. And, you know, the third time this happened, this is a, you know, 24 seven operation. So downtime is a really big deal. And, and the last uh, release third time we brought down production, um, not only did production go down, the rollback failed, and then the feature toggle to disable the broken stuff failed. And so, you know, we were we were up at like three in the morning hacking out a, a patch fix to just so we could get the software out of production while everything was down. It was like the most miserable experience you can imagine. And this was, you know, shortly after I'd I'd been out of college, had had my first. This was my second job out of college, and so. I was I was kind of a little hotshot and had had my head in the clouds and thought I was awesome and and that I was pretty much infallible and had this great idea to that would improve performance to basically flip the architecture inside out and and do this massive set of changes and of course you know I I put that all in production all at once which you know it was, it was just one of those huge lessons in your career that you never forget and that really fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life, especially since all these things. I was like super TDD zealot type at the at the time, and and so I was convinced that our success was all about whether we were following the right practices and whether we were you know doing disciplined TDD on our project. That was the thing that mattered. And when I was doing all this great stuff and I failed anyway, it was like the most foundation shattering experience that I could have ever imagined. And so we got together as a, as a team and we're like, you know, what the hell are we going to do? Because we've been doing everything right, but we're failing anyway. And so we built this tool that could detect high risk changes in the code because we thought the problem was like technical debt building up over time. The you know same problems we always talk about are causing the pain. And um, we thought we could use this tool to you know let us know where we needed to do extra testing 
by, you know, identifying the areas where there are changes by tech debt code. But what we found was that most of the mistakes were actually in the most well-written parts of the system. And so we started digging around in the data, trying to make sense of what we found. But it, it you know, there weren't any answers that made sense and correlated with what we knew about software development and what we're supposed to be optimizing for. And the correlation we did find in the data was that a lower familiarity with the code tended to increase the likelihood of mistakes. And while that made some sense, it seemed like, you know, there had to be more to the story than that. Because when we had to work with complex code, it was really painful. And so we started down this path of trying to understand, well, what is it that makes development feel painful? And so as we were working, we started collecting all this data on, on where we were experiencing pain and then talking about the specific things that were causing the pain and keeping measurements about how long all these various things took and just, you know, writing up the things that seem like our biggest problems on a whiteboard. And it wasn't until we started down this road of collecting data that that we realized that we'd been essentially solving all the wrong problems. Um, you know, we had all this test automation, but the test didn't catch our bugs. And we had well modularized code, but it was still really difficult to troubleshoot all the defects. And then we started, you know, looking at the specific things that were causing our pain and learning with a data-driven feedback loop and realized that most of the problems were actually caused by human factors that were, you know, how a human interacts with the code while they write. And so that's where this whole uh, technique of measuring development experience came from as a means of feedback, feedback, because it was the only thing that seemed to really matter at the end of the day was whether it was easier or harder to do our jobs. <laughs> and if we measured that, and, you know, what data became this like unifying force on our team where it really brought us together in learning how to learn together. And at the time I had this experience, I, I couldn't put what I'd learned into words, but I, I knew I wanted to teach it to other people. And so, um, after I read, um, Peter Senge's book, the fifth discipline about, uh, how to build a learning organization, um, I, I was so inspired by these ideas that I was like, all right, I, I need to figure out how to write this down because this is, this is the, the essence of what Peter Senge is talking about in his book of these five disciplines of a learning organization and learning how to learn together. And essentially I found this really tight correlation between science <laughs> and learning organizations. And then when we start, um, using this kind of scientific method-ish process to sort of learn and examine the data and have a shared uh, direction of better that we're all reaching towards, um, that suddenly um, it unifies a, a, a team like, I don't know, in a really cool way. And it's just, and I've, I've had, I've been fortunate to have some really incredible experiences working with just amazing engineers where um, we learned how to learn together as a team. And so it, it wasn't about what practices we were using. It was about whether we could identify the right problems to solve. And once I learned how to identify the problems, <laughs> the rest of it was easy. You know, I got a, a team of professional 
problem solvers, you know? Um, and yeah. so that, that turned into the skill that I wanted to figure out how to teach, even though it was hard, even though we didn't have, you know, words and a vocabulary to describe the things we learned, I was determined to figure out how to do that and to teach these things to other people. And when you talk about the data gathering, I know from reading your book that there's some very specific things around that. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what the data is um, and how sure. the gathering takes place. So I, I'm measuring specifically uh, troubleshooting, learning, and rework. And we have tools that integrate uh, with the developer's IDE that are partially automated, partially manual. So they're they're uh, if, from a time tracking perspective, it's a lot different than um, – uh, like, you know, managers wanting us to track our time in JIRA because there were tools um, created by developers for developers to use to <laughs> understand what their problems are. So we've always kept management out of the data. It's like, we're doing this for us. Go go away. Um, and then, um, so we, we've come up with better ways to kind of automate things over over time. But essentially, so let's say I'm, uh, when we're writing code, we go through this cycle of you write a little code and work out the kinks over and over again. And when you get to that point after you, you write a little code um, and you're validating things, you've kind of got a, a prediction in mind of what you're expecting the code to do. And at that point, there's kind of like a decision point in our brain. If the, if the code does what we expect it to do, we write a little bit more code. And if the code doesn't do what we expect, we go through into this like troubleshooting mode. And what I found is, is that um, in, in the uh, moving forward, modifying more code, uh, learning and or basically figuring out what you're going to do um, can take a whole lot of time, especially now that 90% of our software is built from existing parts. Uh, or if you're unfamiliar with the code, um, learning is a substantial part of our, our work that gets in our way. Um, and on the, uh, on the troubleshooting side, you know, we've got to troubleshoot the problem and then do rework to put things back in place before we can move forward again. And so this, this flow of ideas between the developer and the software and the, the, the friction in that flow, I'm, I'm measuring in terms of troubleshooting, learning and rework, and then actual duration of those times. And then we have a general rule on the team where anything that take, takes longer than 20 minutes, we talk about and try and understand, you know, what the causes are that made this incident so painful. And it's, it's always, you know, a kind of gut feel type factor of, you know, in, in one case is 20 minutes is not much time. And in other cases, it's, it's, it's way more time than it should be. And so you kind of just talk about the things that are worth talking about. Don't talk about it's just kind of noise. Yeah, I find um, the importance that you place on pain to be really um, fascinating. Um, and I was wondering, I have a sort of specific question I'd like to ask about that. But first, I'd like to know if you could maybe define a little bit about what you mean when you talk about pain. Um, hmm. So, so in this context, I'm relating pain to friction in idea flow. And the reason I use the word pain specifically is that, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I want people to focus on the symptoms as opposed to the cause. Because one of the problems that we have in our industry is automatically assuming what the cause is of the pain, like it's this ugly code I have here, as opposed to focusing on the symptoms and our experience and working backwards. And so I use the word pain specifically to get people thinking about, well, what are the symptoms? And then let's have a 
a richer conversation about what are the potential causes because usually most problems have multiple factors. And I think that's one of the places that developers tend to get stuck on best practices as it's very kind of solution focused. Um, the, the other thing is that intuitively, just from experience, pain is associated with this idea of, you know, something that we want to avoid and figure out how to have less of or, or reduce it. And from a optimizing idea flow standpoint, that that's kind of the message I want to relay is there, there's this thing that, you know, is, is sort of a threshold thing that we want to keep in check to a, to a level that we can deal with it. It's not about eliminating pain. It's about figuring out how to optimize and and manage the pain so it's at a at a, a tolerable level and kind of kind of stays that way um uh friction even though i'm associating it with pain it often doesn't totally correlate with um what developers are are using that word for now um like for example um uh, one of the uh, uh perceptions that's usually really far off in software development is just our notion of of what takes a long time. And one of the things that happens is when we're busy like working on a problem and, and doing stuff, time seems to zoom by really quickly. Whereas um, when time is, you know, we're waiting on something to happen, like waiting for something to execute, um, it, it feels really painful because we have to wait all that time for that thing to get done. And time seems to go really slowly. And so when you start looking at things in terms of elapsed time, we feel like that thing that, you know, took five seconds was like an eternity and that that was really painful. But then we've got all this time that we spent troubleshooting that that, you know, we don't necessarily associate with pain, even though it, it takes, you know, an order of magnitude more time in terms of human cycles. And, but because, you know, we're busy doing stuff and problem solving is fun, even, <laughs> um, you know, doing things that are fun, we seldom, uh, you know, associate with painful. Right. And so I was, I was trying to, uh, create this, uh, mapping visually to sort of remap our pain sensors to something that, is is explicitly defined that we could all share this universal definition of what is is pain being you know things that slow down the process of idea flow even though you know it, it takes some remapping of our pain sensors it's really interesting to me and one of the reasons i i like your book so much was that um you you, you talk about addressing pain as a problem and pain and you were saying just now that pain is something we want to avoid but i think it's really one of the reasons I find it so compelling is that that's so often not true in management practices. Um, my brother told me a great story where I had a kind of, um, you know, apple falling on Newton's head kind of moment when um, he walked into a box store, um, a big box store, and there were two employees, one of an earlier generation and one of a sort of later generation. And um, the one from the later, they were handing up flyers or something, wearing little vests. Um, and um, the, the, I guess the, I should just, the younger person started walking off and um, the older person said, where are you going? And um, the younger person said to the bathroom and the older person said, make it snappy. Um, and I just, I mean, what I, what I, what, what occurred to me in hearing that story was that pain is actually something that people often use in um, managing others uh, 
in a sense, positively, right? They, 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 they use pain as a tool to get the work done. Um, and so when you think about the way, for example, I mean, and I was thinking about, you know, what I've read about slavery and um, uh, the way there'd be kind of like an overseer um, watching people work and cracking the whip and making sure that they kept stayed active. Um, and there was this, I just saw this line from that all the way to, you know, this, you know, box store and these two people invest uh, in the way observation um, and the use of the infliction of pain is such a sort of is so baked in to various kinds of management practices um, uh, that it, it, well, me... we don't we don't even kind of notice it. Right. That it that it's so obvious. And, and, you know, I was interviewing someone recently who said when in his first software job, he was a tester for the Australian government um, and he actually had to log whenever he left his station, he had to log why, including going to the bathroom and for how long and the, the, the humiliation built into that. And, and I found anyway, just, just, just to finish um, the, the thing I find so interesting about managing software and especially in a world where, you know, software is eating the world, right. And everything is being driven by software. It's become this really important form of labor, but it's invisible. Um, yeah. The work that the person is doing, you can't like, for example, imagine you're in that long ancient tradition of the manager who watches, right? It doesn't matter if you're watching people sowing seeds or reaping um, the wheat or uh, working on a factory floor and an assembly line. You can just, you can develop all these practices around watching people, but with programmers, they're just, <laughs> sitting, they're just sitting there, right? You know what? Yeah. The, you, you can imagine being from that tradition, and then you walk into you get hired to manage programmers, and you're like, "Well, what? What's there for me to do?" Um, yeah. And 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 so you, what you've done in your book is, and with your ideas, is you've like completely flipped it around and abandoned this form of management um, that's so universal and so inappropriate, and that people have, for a world where software is important, and that people have attempted in so many ways to try and you know, you know, do metrics and things like that around around the wrong things, and and what you do is, in my opinion, anyway, is that you you're looking at exactly the right thing, which is taking into account like the 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 pain that people feel when they're doing types of work, and then really thinking that through. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say I think that 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 what you're doing is actually quite revolutionary. That's a that's an interesting story and take on 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 the management side of this. So one of the other big um, target audiences I, I had in mind when writing my book was was managers and helping them to get a feel for what it's really like to be a developer in this world. And I, I don't think, like, if you listen to the way managers talk and the way developers talk, it's almost like we're speaking to different languages and like developers use words like, you know, uh, beauty to describe the code and, and elegance and, and, you know, firefighting and explosions and all of our metaphors are in terms of art and war. And then if you listen, it's, it's all about, um, money and, and profit and bonuses and ROI and all this money related stuff. And, and I think what, we have to realize is that as software organizations, we're basically building, you know, a, a business that sells profitable artwork. And, and, you know, you kind of need to think about the economy as a, as a giant art contest. And 
when with software development, it's very personal and that we very much invest our hearts and souls as software developers into our work. And then seeing your creation get stomped on by all this organizational dysfunction is an emotionally damaging experience. And, and so there's, there's all this, um, cynicism and, and struggle and a feeling of, of helplessness that turns into contempt within our organizations. And we get these like divided cultures where you've got kind of a, a management culture that's all trying to raise morale through a celebration. And there's all this fake happiness for lack of a better word. Um, and then defensiveness around uh, not wanting to, you know, shatter the perfect illusion bubble. And so management is often really resistant to talk about problems and pain and things that are going on because, because then it seems like a reflection on them if they've got little, you know, red marks on their, on their status updates. You know what Whereas, I can't, I can't stop thinking right now when you're talking like this about the, um, there was this sort of infamous photo of the Yahoo executive team dressed up in Wizard of Oz outfits um, that was being being presented to the employees as this sort of like um, motivational thing, you know, like the, the leaders are all on board and sort of superstars and then the total disconnect in the use of that image and what's really going on there. Yeah. And I, I see so many managers that are really concerned about talking about the problems and that they believe that it will bring down morale if they talk about the problems. But in fact, it's like quite the opposite that usually occurs. And especially when you have uh, data to, to have a conversation about that um, putting the pain on center stage is like you, as opposed to fighting each other and, and blaming other people for the problems, you have you have a, a beast to conquer. And then when you go in and conquer the beast, then it builds camaraderie within within your company and it brings people together around seeking truth as opposed to, you know, this the this culture of, you know, imagining the world that we wish we had and trying to will that into existence through celebration. Um, or, you know, the, the after work drinks and bitching about our jobs and, and how nothing will ever change and how everything's hopeless. And, and I mean, which starts to breed this undercurrent of contempt in our organizations. And emotionally speaking, people are very much going to war. And, and I, I see a lot of these, um, problems, you know, in organizations across the industry where our software problems creates cultural problems and have a huge effect on the, on the lives of human beings. And so I, I, I'm hoping that these ideas catch on from a standpoint of a strategy where we can bring the, the art side of the world together with the money side of the world and realize that we can have both. And granted, it takes a lot of work to figure out how to get there and how to learn together to optimize the whole. But at the end of the day, you build something beautiful and uh, software organizations become about, you know, working together to bring something awesome into the world. And then, you know, when you're competing in the world's art contest, you make money because you built something awesome. And at the end of the day, I think those are the kind of things that human beings really care about is, is having the opportunity to do something that matters and, and to experience that with other people. Yeah, I think um, the... It's it's sort of central to your 
vision or your insight into what people are actually doing when they're engaged in software development, it, it, it flows directly from your your basic premise that things like pain and things like the human element matter because it's a human activity. And it's it's so interesting that, you know, we, we live in a kind of, in a professional world where talking about the human element immediately requires a little bit of defensiveness or something like that, right? Because that's supposed to be um, of secondary importance and just a problem to avoid. But what your your idea flow metaphor puts the human activity it, it's sort of like ontologically at the heart of what is really is really happening, um, because yeah. as, as I understand it, when the idea is that, uh, well, I'll quote you here that um, interaction with the code as a stream of ideas flowing between me and the software um, is is what is 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 a correct uh, description of what's actually happening in coding. Um, that I have an idea that I try to. Uh, express it in code, um, and then that code, you know, then is you know used used to carry out various things. And you can see whether my idea was translated properly by me into the code, and then properly read by the machine reading the code. And then on yet, and then the, the next step is when someone else is reading my code, have I correctly flowed my idea, you know? from its origin within me into into them um and i just find that so compelling um because that actually is what's happening that that are, are we need to take into account i mean one can say the human side of things but just that it's consciousness that is engaging with um the machine um uh through code uh and that and that to to try and take consciousness out of it um is to uh, completely misunderstand what this process really is. And then that's why it flows naturally that concepts like pain actually become, you know, scientific um, uh, metrics um, to measure because it, it's, it, that is actually what you're, what you're looking at um, is, is a, is a process of consciousness engaging with something. Yeah. Uh, one of the kind of interesting extensions I, I mentioned early on, my, I mean, using mentorship and a, a kind of creating a developer lab to to test these ideas. And one of the ways I've been looking at idea flow as as mentorship being, I have an idea in my head about about how to optimize productivity, say, and how do I I teach that idea to somebody else, and that that's another type of idea flow of of, of sharing that idea. And the thing that I kind of learned from that is that you know the only real difference between communicating something and teaching something is whether we take responsibility for whether that other person actually understood the idea or not, and so. Um, likewise, I, I came up with a, a method of testing whether a person understood by testing their ability to think through and make trade-off decisions in a variety of, of kind of staged scenarios. So that kind of led to my technical assessment technique too. Um, so this whole underlying concept of what is it to get, what does it mean for an idea to get from my head into somebody else's head? And how do we come up with an explicit sort of scientific method for testing whether that has actually occurred or not has, has given me a feedback loop for learning how to become a better mentor as well. Yeah. On that note, you talk, um, uh, about, about communication. Um, 
which, which you know becomes very actually precisely defined um, in this kind of circumstance. Um, you talk about the importance of metaphors, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, why you think metaphors and good metaphors um, are so important for this process. So I had a, a couple key influences with that. So one of them uh, is a book I, I, I mentioned in Idea Flow called uh, Metaphors We Live By, which is a a theory on human understanding as a fabric of metaphor. And that is essentially everything we understand is in terms of other things we already understand and that we build up understanding by, by um, through relationships of metaphors of, so one metaphor, how it relates to another thing it, it, through metaphor and then how those things are similar and different. And the book goes through a whole bunch of examples in, uh, in our languages and comparing cultures and how, um, um, when you have a, a different foundational metaphor, you get fundamentally different understanding at the cultural level. And, and all of this, you know, cultural difference analysis is a fascinating book. And, and it fundamentally changed the way I started looking at learning and improvement and communication in that I started to think of my brain like, like a, a, a shape toy. And that I've got all these shapes that I, that I know in the world. Uh, and, and, you know, when I see a square, I sort of shove that into my shape toy brain, if you can imagine that. And in order to be able to recognize something else from my experience, I basically need to define a new shape. And so one of the feedback loops I discovered was that uh, by explicitly defining new vocabulary, like looking at my experiences and then saying, oh, this is this pattern and making up all these new pattern names for types of mistakes or for um, different strategies or problems in the in in the code or that make troubleshooting take a long time or whatever it is. I basically built a, a massive taxonomy of patterns. But in the process of doing this, I realized that I started to recognize things in my in my experience that I never noticed before and that there was this feedback loop of of the more patterns I could develop in my vocabulary, the more uh, detailed my observations were from my experience and the faster I ended up learning because it was like I I had amplified what I could learn from each experience as well as given myself all these awesome tools and connections for synthesizing information I'd learned. And there was one metaphor that had a huge impact on my my thinking of so uh, Ash Morier he's got a, a book coming out really soon called uh, Scaling Lean and I went to a workshop of his like three years ago when he first started working on this book and he introduced this this metaphor uh, he calls the the customer factory so Ash um, focuses on uh, lean startup practitioner related uh, material. And but essentially what he done is is codify a method for practicing everyday science and then mapped lean manufacturing to kind of a, a customer experience model. So if you imagine like you're in a your business is like an amusement park and you've got people lining up to the entrance of the amusement park when you know they wanna um uh use your product and then their first experience of taking the rides, that kind of thing. And then he came up with this way to measure and model the flow of different experiences through the business and measure that and optimize what he calls happy customer flow. And what was so fascinating about this is it was like a, 
experience business or an experience-based supply chain model. And since all the stuff I started doing was in um, developer experience, as I started looking at the problems, I figured out how to build a a supply chain model, um, mapping the same kind of metaphor idea to software development. But rather than the process flow that we normally think of as the supply chain, I was using the uh, software dependency supply chain with experience-based data on top of it. So what, um, how you experienced changing a particular software component, for example, and modeling it across the software dependencies. And once I figured out how to do that in sort of optimize idea flow across the idea flow factory, as it were. Um, since my background is in process control and supply chain optimization from the manufacturing world, suddenly it was like everything I'd learned from lean manufacturing, like clicked together with everything from lean startup that clicked together with everything I'd been doing with idea flow. And it was like this massive synergy of, of patterns that suddenly went together and they were all linked together through metaphor. And, um, so as soon as I, as, as soon as I, um, whenever I discover basically a new metaphorical link, it's like all of these new discoveries and ways that you can, um, make associations just fundamentally shifts. And, and I think the major, uh, revolutions in our industry always come with some kind of metaphorical shift. Yeah, that's a really fascinating um, way of putting it. I mean, you used some great metaphors in there as well, like um, the brain as shape toy um, interacting with the world and um, customer experience as, as being like an amusement park. I mean, that's just amazing. And I think, I think uh, you sort of um, proved your point um, <laughs> uh, uh, by, by using those metaphors so well, because it, it, it's sort of like, I guess, one way of viewing it would be a kind of, uh, when you successfully use a metaphor, it's like a shortcut to communicating not just like a, a, a set of facts, but a kind of conceptual structure around viewing facts um, uh, and, and, and understanding what you're actually looking at in a practical way. Um, in, your, in your book, you also talk about um, addressing the root cause of project failure in the software industry. Um, and this is something I think um, it, it's one of the most important um, things facing uh, uh, industry, I guess, generally today is that as everything becomes software driven, um, understanding the issues in software development become more important. Um, and uh, in particular, you know, we, we all see in the popular press um, these catastrophic software failures, um, you know, the most one of the ones that would first come to mind for most people would probably be the, or at least in, in the West would be the Obamacare, uh, you know, um, rollout and how that failed. But I mean, up here in Canada, we've had our share of these catastrophic failures as well. Um, and so I was wondering, um, in, in the context of your concept of idea flow and your book, if you could maybe explain what you think the root cause of project failure is in, in the software industry and then by extension, all of industry because it's driven by software. So I, I was going to say, I, I think there's a, a few different core problems, but I'd say the one that's probably at the more of the root would be our inability to share knowledge as an industry. 
and we're we're sharing this kind of solution centric knowledge with one another and what i found is it's 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 not enough and the things that we really need to know in our industry are largely tacit knowledge and they're largely learned through mentorship and and as the industry is growing and you know more people are getting into the industry and they're not getting the kind of education that they need in in school to to know how to do these things we end up with more and more projects with people that don't have the skills that they need to do their jobs and don't know how to communicate these things to management and management doesn't know how to you know understand what's happening on the software project to make it be successful and and the combination of you know what I'm referring to as the wall of ignorance between the management world and the engineering world and how we're basically trying to explain and describe our problems being completely misunderstood, um, being one major factor. And the other one just being a, uh, not being able to uh, share our knowledge as an industry and or have any kind of a uh, universal definition of, of better that we're aiming for. So it's, it's like uh, we talk about brevity and modularity and test coverage, but all of these things are really kind of a means to an end and, and that, you know, we're, we're not, um, we don't have a way to describe what better really means that as the center point of that conversation, I think that's one of the big things that IdeaFlow brings to the table is it, it gives us a way to um, share our knowledge on how to do this stuff because these these projects that fail it's just it's sad especially when you know the taxpayers get get stuck with the bill when of of just mismanaged projects from people that are running things that don't know what they're doing when that knowledge of how to run a successful software project is very much knowledge that is within our industry. And if we could do a better job at, um, at one, sharing our knowledge and then even um, taking responsibility for um, public service-based projects and potentially running these things as, as open managed projects by the industry as opposed to having um, the government having no idea how to build software and then running these broken software projects, it's just um, – it's it's tax burden and stuff that is completely unnecessary because it's like we 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 can solve these problems it's not it's not i should say it's not that software isn't difficult it's that some types of failure are so unnecessary <laughs> yeah well it certainly, like, it like certainly looks that doctor. way yeah it yeah. certainly looks that way from the consumer end of things so it's it's just it depresses me a little bit that that we end up wasting so much of our money on on things that I mean, I, I think, you know, like for example, if we ran healthcare.gov as an open source project, for example, I think things would have turned out very differently. If you basically had one, we could have, you know, had the thing happen for free, basically based on, you know, voluntary support. And because it was something that's important to the people that I'll bet you, you know, people do a good job at managing that project just because a lot of people care and we can build, you know, societal support based on just humans caring about each other and helping each other to, you know, build the stuff that we need. Yeah, it just it seems to me that um, I mean, well, you know, there's there's with government in particular, there's the particular challenge that um, being skilled at getting government contracts and being skilled at 
building software are two very different <laughs> and perhaps incompatible yeah. things. Um, but I think that there's just something about, and I mean, you talked about the wall of ignorance between sort of, you know, people doing software development and managers. And I think that from conventional management perspectives, there's so many things about um, software development that are just new and counterintuitive. Um, yeah. You know, for example, if you're a typical manager, and I'm going to just stereotype negatively here, but like you want to have more people underneath you. Um, you know, I've got 10 people underneath me. Well, I've got 100, you know, you loser. This, you know, would be the sort of like talk over the bar, right? Um, but in software, it could be that having more people is worse and actually lowers productivity and lowers the quality of the work that you're doing. Um, it, you know, it's not, you can't just have more people doing the planting or something or working the machines or something like that. And, and, and for example, um, you know, uh, a person just sitting there thinking, you know, might be way more productive than a person typing or doing something, you know, active. Um, and, and, and in, in a very straightforward way, less is more, right? You, you want the smallest code base you can get, not the biggest, you know, you don't, a, a manager might brag, you know, well, my project has 8 million lines of code. And you're like, well, mine only has 10,000, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, but it could be that what you've achieved with those 10,000 lines of code is superior to what the other, you know, group achieved with 8 million lines of code. Um, and so I think that a lot of the, the ways people measure success um, are out of alignment with the ways we, we ought to be measuring success and that that wall of ignorance is partly there. You say, I mean, you say, you know, there's, there's ROI and money is, are, the, are the terms and sort of uh, that, um, that, that managers are living with and then the developers are living with, with um, you know, say, beauty um, and, uh, and uh, you know, efficiency or something like that. Um, and yeah, it just seems to me that, that, that one of the reasons those, those big, especially government projects fail is that people are brought into ma there, there's this concept that management and work are these fundamentally different things. And, and that's there from the start. Um, so the, the, the sort of the whole, the whole thing needs to be thrown out in order for it to be improved. Yeah, I, I, hmm. You don't need to agree with anything I said. By the way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was just thinking in terms of like uh, management, I, I haven't really run into any managers that were that were concerned about, um, you know, trying to measure lines of code as a as a measure of of progress. I, I think we've we've moved past that era. Um, uh, what what I see happening more is more so the the first problem you brought up definitely of not realizing the impact of adding people to the project or assuming that you can replace one developer with another developer and and not realizing the impact and the 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 learning curve and the effects of familiarity on a team and uh, part of the problem I think is is the you know back to a metaphor of of technical debt that has us kind of thinking about the problems in terms of a interest rate or this this uh, like a, a predictable stream of interest payments over time and when we think about interest we think about oh we're you know paying ten percent interest twenty percent interest and it's it's the steady predictable thing and and it, it creates the illusion that we can um, throw more people at the problem and distribute the cost across more people when in actuality what's going on isn't a problem with a predictable increase in costs. It's a problem with chaos and a loss of control. And that metaphor is failing to explain kind of the true nature of the problem that we're trying to solve. And uh, I, I realized this when I was in a, a, a business 
business coaching session with uh, Keith Cunningham, and I was I was talking about um, technical debt, and and uh, none of these these people in the class knew anything about software, and uh, but I was trying to you know explain it in terms of these metaphors and how technical debt was such a a bad thing and what it was like, and and the response was. Uh, well, that doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Why don't you even want to know like the, the interest rate or something? And, and huh, what I, really what really I learned in that, in that world was that, you know, the way that these guys do, um, math and, and make decisions at the investment level, you know, almost just seems so crazy because it's so far removed, but it's like, okay, we got revenue minus cost equals profit. And our goal is to raise profit by 10%. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, you know, you have to basically come up with an investment strategy of how you're going to invest money in all these different buckets to make this prediction come true. And what I, I realized in, in um, this class was that what makes um, investment decisions more difficult isn't an increase in cost. It's a reduction in predictability and that, in that chaos and the loss of predictability is much scarier than an, than an increase in cost. And so when I started talking to management, I started framing everything in terms of a risk-based decision, as in the deadline will be here either way. And the decision is about where we want to be when that deadline gets here. It's not about you know, uh, as soon as you start negotiating things in terms of time, you get back to that metaphor of how can we throw more people at the problem to make it go faster. Um, and then the other thing I, I, I still see is, is people thinking about developers like a, a commodity resource. And what's fascinating when you look at the effects of a loss of familiarity on the team, I have one case study in the book I, I did with this team that it was an awesome team, but basically it was like post exodus phase where all the original developers left had this, you know, huge breakdown. And then they were, they, they got new management in, which brought in some great people, but they had this code base that nobody understood. And the lack of familiarity cost, you know, 80 to 90% of their time were spent, you know, figuring out what to do. And the the cost when familiarity walks out the door is insane. I mean, a lot of rewriting our software is just to reestablish familiarity because we can't work when we can't, you know, relearn um, the system. Um, and, and you just get stuck in that state of 80, 90% friction. And I don't, I don't think, you know, we're talking about interest rates, you don't think about stuff that's taking 80 to 90% of your capacity. It just, it, it's, it's unreal when you start looking at how much time we waste for all these problems. It's interesting. You talk about um, uh, technical debt, um, getting us to see as nouns, what we should be seeing as painful verbs. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I really like that. And I was wondering if you could explain, you know, on the subject of technical debt a little bit more about what, what you mean by that. Sure. So, so this kind of goes back to the metaphor mapping thing of we've got different kind of metaphors that we map in our brain. We got, we've got objects, which are basically thing patterns. We've got, um, uh, kind of spatial relationships and context type patterns. And then we've got process patterns or things that happen over time. And all of these different metaphors have these three basic types. And one of the things I, I realized is that technical debt is a noun. And the effects of it being a noun mean that we look 
for things that are noun-like in our experience. And generally, we look at, okay, so this this uh, part of the code is a noun, this, this technical debt thing. And this is a painful technical debt. This is a low pain or a high pain, but, but it's all one dimensional. We kind of bucket our experiences in terms of high pain and low pain technical debt. But idea flow is a, is a process of understanding and extending the software. And so pain is, is, ha- occurs in the, in the context of a process. And once we shift from a thing pattern to a process pattern, suddenly we start seeing our pain in terms of a a journey of we're in these situations. We make these decisions to navigate around obstacles and have to dig through different areas of friction and, and break down constraints. And you start to see the problem solving experience and the true complexity of, of what's going on because we've, we can start relating to journey metaphors or things that happen in, in time as opposed to just one dimensional things. And it, it, uh, if you look at the, the patterns in my book, they're with patterns of mistakes and patterns of causes of troubleshooting time. They're not like any patterns we have in our vocabulary at all. They're patterns in development experience that I didn't start to discover until I'd shifted my foundational way. I started thinking about pain as a a process and what were all the factors along my problem solving journey that ended up affecting my pain. Um, I've got um, one last question um, about your book and it's, um, I was wondering if you, if you could say, say, for example, someone who's listening, who is or has or will be uh, managing a software project, how they can use the concept of idea flow um, to improve their work. So if is would this be for a developer or for like a manager? For a manager. Okay. Um, so one thing I'd say is that um, the the techniques I'm proposing in my book need to be developer owned in that the development team needs to take responsibility for identifying their problems, understanding what they are and figuring out how to fix those problems and learning how to do that and discovering the right problems takes time. And if we don't allocate time to figure out what the right problems to solve are, that will inadvertently end up solving the wrong problems whenever we try and work on improvement. And if management can agree to let the development team work on the most important problems to solve, whatever those might be, and the development team agrees to gather data to identify what the biggest problems are and then share the things that they're learning with management. We just set aside capacity to do that. And that becomes the contract between management and development. Then you can start um, working your way to a better place and then shifting that ownership of making those decisions and gathering requirements and solving those problems to engineering and we can start steering our projects. And I think that's the kind of, you know, we talk about the importance of empowered teams, but it's not just about self-organizing and figuring out what we ought to do because 
we're all too busy to do that. <laughs> and so we just kind of, you know, shortcut all the structural things and do what we need to do right now and, and worry about all, all the process stuff later because much rather write code. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I think we, we need to have that structure and it's, and it's worth putting some time into designing our organizational structure more like its architecture and having that be a, a first class responsibility of understanding kind of the communication dynamics um, in our organizations and and start creating like um, more human systems architecture roles, if you if you will. Um, I've, I've also got some diagrams of basically modeling using software as a metaphor for human systems design and, and some of the design problems in our organizational structure that, that cause pain. And I think using that as, as a template, even if, um, you do nothing else and take absolutely nothing else from the book, that one change, uh, will make all the difference in, um, the success of the project. Well, thanks very much for that. That's a really great, great answer. Um, uh, I guess um, I was just wondering what um, the next step is for you. Um, you've, you've got you've got the book and you've got these great ideas that you want to spread. Um, and I was wondering what what your next steps are. Wow, I got so many next steps. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so right now I'm, I'm doing a, a, a speaking tour with uh, no fluff, just stuff. And so I've got a five talk lineup that I'm doing, um, breaking down these problems of, you know, how to do data driven software mastery and then the organizational side, how to build a learning organization. And then, you know, my business pressure to get time to work on it. It's a very firm believer in that, you know, you, you just get up and do do it anyway. And you don't grow without stepping outside your comfort zone. So so I'm I'm learning my way through it. And um and so uh, I've got I've I've had things that I wanted to share for a long time. And this this book too took me five years to write and and rewriting things over and over again. <laughs> and failing to communicate because all this stuff is really abstract and um i can iterate a lot faster on stage too i found but it's it's kind of a challenge um uh but the thing i'm working on right now is is building a a community at um open mastery around these ideas which is a industry peer learning network focused on data-driven software mastery so um, essentially companies um, and individuals that are interested in trying out these ideas. I'm, I'm working on spinning up uh, local communities where, you know, we can start working on implementing these uh, uh, practices in our organizations iteratively and then coming together in a local community group and talk about uh, lessons learned and kind of codifying what we learn into patterns and principles. And then we're building a, a new vocabulary of patterns on Wikipedia and we're hanging out and talking over Slack and we're writing blogs about learn and just tools we have every day to build a community around. But my goal is, is to lead an effort in learning how to learn together with the pain on center stage. And, and, um, you know, there's so many problems with, uh, in our, in our industry with, 
broken feedback loops with between you know the education system and our in our uh, economic system and between um uh you know management and engineering and if you start looking at a lot of the problems and pain in the world it all kind of comes back to broken feedback loops and so what i'm trying to lead is is an effort in learning how to learn together as an organization and as a community and as an industry and hopefully if i can get this going as a species so that's kind of what i want to do with my life um and i'm hoping that i can find a group of people that are interested in learning along with me cuz it's it's a whole lot of fun but it's a whole lot more fun to do it with other people yeah well um thanks thanks very much for taking some time in your life to uh do this interview um i hope i hope it helps um uh spread spread your ideas um and and helps you um achieve that um uh and i really hope you succeed by the way <laughs> um uh uh i guess i um i'd like to ask you one question um about uh lean pub and that's um why you chose um lean pub for your book um obviously you know something that took 5 years to write where how you distribute it and how you publish it is a very important decision and yeah i was wondering if if you if you intend to keep it on lean pub as permanently or do you, are you looking for a publishing contract um so uh, your your first question of of why lean pub so the, the first thing that I, I mean you know being being um in software development and agile and lean being so central to my life i mean i i live and breathe iterate <laughs> and and having a a platform that was really easy to get started with that i couldn't get in my own way of all the kinds of excuses i would make of not doing this it's just like i i remember first reading the lean pub documentation and uh, and how like writing in your your book in markdown without all these formatting things was a feature <laughs> and 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 at first i i was like upset that i didn't have all these fancy tools and then i and then i started to realize i'm like oh i i get what this means now of how much i get in my own way from not writing my book cuz i'm sitting there fussing with what things look like as opposed to just writing the material and i i came to really like the the uh you know flow and and the the way that the tools are um organized and your contents organized is just really straightforward and easy to work with and you focus on writing your book <laughs> as opposed to anything else and i've i've a very much um you know enjoyed that aspect of the experience it's been it's been great and then i can you know easily publish drafts and and get feedback on things which i very much needed my book wouldn't be anywhere near what it is today without you know 5 years of of feedback and you know some of it not you know the nicest feedback that you want to hear but right. it doesn't mean it's not <laughs> not what you need to hear um but uh yeah i've been very thankful for for the the tooling and it's awesome cool thanks Oh yeah, and I guess I, I have a tendency sometimes to ask two questions at once. But um, are you are you um, going to be looking for a, a conventional publishing contract and distributing the book through a conventional publisher at some point? I I am. I'm I'm working with O'Reilly right now. So I ended up taking my book and splitting it into two because I just had way too much content. Content. Um, so what I'm working on right now is I'm I'm like eighty percent of the way through a second book, which I'm 
I'm my tentative title is is how to build a learning organization, which is kind of the learning framework uh, side of IdeaFlow. So I ended up focusing IdeaFlow just on how do you measure pain, and then the learning framework itself. I'm splitting into another book. So one of the things that uh, I've I've learned in in trying to um, sell these ideas is is that I've got kind of a two sided audience. One of them being developers, and the other ones being management. And so my my second uh, book, I'm I'm gonna focus more on kind of looking at the the problem from a a top down standpoint of what managers need to do to to support engineers and and. And kind of like, you know, what does the organizational protocol look like from each side of the organization? And then how do we start building a integrated organizational learning process so we can, um, you know, create a steering wheel of sorts at the organizational level, which is a hugely complex problem. But um, I've got an initial set of blueprints as a starting point. And then I'm using Open Mastery as a vehicle to uh, to get the community to take ownership of, you know, getting from point A to, you know, point awesome. Um, and so, let's see, what was your original oh, no. question? Oh no, no, that was um, it was um, uh, are you going to be looking for a conventional publishing contract? Oh for, yeah, for so I'm I'm working with O'Reilly, and I'll I'll keep my book on LeanPub probably as long as I can. Um, but, uh, my main goal is trying to get, um, my book in, in, in front of as many eyeballs as possible mm-hmm. more than anything else. And, you know, uh, working in partnership with a giant, uh, marketing machine has, has its advantages. Yeah. Well, um, I just wanted to say on that note, I mean, for us at LeanPub, um, when someone starts their book on LeanPub, um, and then ends up getting, going in the end with a publisher and retiring their book on LeanPub, that to us, I mean, almost nothing makes us happier, right? I mean, that is just such a fantastic um, outcome for the author and, and, and for us, because our part of our goal is to, you know, open up that time when a book is normally, you know, hidden in stealth mode on a person's hard drive to uh, the public and to people. And, um, you know, if, if, if all books were published while they were in progress and then get taken up by publishers at the end, it's a win on all sides, um, for everyone, including readers, um, and authors. Um, I guess, I guess my last question is, is selfish. I mean, speaking to someone who's, uh, uh, who thinks so much about improving processes, um, is there any, if there were one thing that you could ask us to build or to improve about LeanPub, what would, what would that be? Hmm. You know, probably the the thing I feel like I'm missing the most that I've been trying to make up for in other kinds of ways is the ability to to build a community around the book that's integrated kind of with the tooling. I I, I know there's kind of um, email list kind of set up, but when people um, uh, buy the book, unless they check the little box of, you know, share their email, it's really hard to... Um, create relationships out of that. And I've tried to come up with some other ways to kind of work around that with um, signups through, you know, other kinds of tools to collect emails so I could stay in touch with the community. But that's, that's probably the big thing I feel like I'm, I'm is, is, is in my way as an author is, is uh, 
building, like getting, getting the uh, community of, of people around the book, talking to each other, as opposed to just this one way communication of, mm-hmm. you know, more. Mm-hmm. And I realize, you know, there's discussion comments and stuff, but it just has a very different kind of feel to it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for that. You're the, the second author I've interviewed just in the last couple of months um, to talk about uh, community when asked that question. So that's a very strong signal. And it's actually something that we've been thinking really hard about. And so hopefully somewhere in the near, near to medium term, we'll, um, we'll have, we'll have a better community experience. I mean, yeah, as you know, did we, we now have, you know, a sort of double blind email, the author process, if people want to use it that way. And we've got, um, uh, discuss comments if, if authors don't turn it off, but, but there's just so much more we know we can do around that, including, and, and you know, from our perspective, you know, we're, we're sort of building the world's first library of in progress books um, you know, and, and what does that look like? And, and what is the importance of community around that? And there's interesting, a lot of interesting questions around, for example, reviews, right? Um, you know, back to 1996 Amazon. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what, what do you do with a review of a, an unfinished book when the book is then, you know, when a new chapter is added or something like that? There's, in, there's an interesting aspect of sort of time that's involved. And, and it's just so interesting to think around building community throughout that time and around an unfinished thing. Yeah, I can, I can see that being a really difficult uh, challenge. Just, you know, I I think about some of the early feedback I got that was just like awful feedback, like stuff that you'd never want to make public. Like I have no idea what this book's about (laughs) and, or what you're trying to say, you know, it's like, you just need to rewrite this whole thing from scratch. It makes no sense. I mean, like feedback like that, you don't really want to necessarily be a big public spectacle that you can never get rid of necessarily. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be some privacy around certain aspects of, of feedback, especially, um, I don't think, you'll get the kind of feedback you need in a lot of cases, unless it's private. Um, so it's, really it's like there's, there's kind of two different. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. Hmm. It's an interesting challenge you guys have. Oh, that's a really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. That's a re- cause, cause yeah. So one of the processes that that's pretty commonly used by lean pop authors is to put their email address in the like sort of introduction to their book and say, please email me. And then that, that is almost, almost always a private communication, but I hadn't put it together that one of the reasons that's actually, it sounds so clunky, but the reason it works so well is that it has this value of being private. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Well, um, I think this is my first um, feature length interview. <laughs> and I want to thank you very much for your time and for, for all your great, great answers to questions um, and, and for your book as well. So um, thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was really fun.